Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which seeks to bring you the histories of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, Richard and I will be discussing our latest installment for the Reading Revolution series, The Colonizer and the Colonized by Albert Memmi. Memmi, himself a man of Jewish-Italian descent who grew up in French-occupied Tunisia, wrote The Colonizer and the Colonized in 1957 amid Tunisia's struggle for independence as a treatise on the symbolic nature of colonial dominance and the colonial subject at a time when territories throughout Africa saw a series of anti-colonial movements, political organizing, and subsequent wars against the European nations that had taken hold of their daily social, cultural, and economic lives. Though this particular aspect of Memi's earlier work served as an inspiration to several anti-colonial movement leaders and remains widely read as a revolutionary text, it's somewhat difficult to reconcile with the author's own turn later in life from defender of anti-colonial movements to a critic. Following tensions between Jewish and Muslim Tunisians after independence, Memi went on to express anti-Arab and at times Islamophobic sentiments and including what was ultimately a rejection of the Palestinian struggle for recognition, formal statehood, and an end to the Israeli occupation. Memi is still alive and, in an ironic twist, now lives in France, the former occupier of the country of his birth. Despite these seemingly ironic shifts, Memi produced several solid examinations of the colonial condition and what it means for all parties involved therein. Here's part one of our discussion of his seminal work, The Colonizer and the Colonized. Enjoy. I'm here today talking with Richard, my co-host in crime and hopefully revolution, as today we are going to be doing yet another reading revolution. And today's discussion is going to be about Albert Memmi's The Colonizer and the Colonized. Richard, welcome. Oh, well, thank you again for uh have given me this opportunity and I'm looking forward for this text. It was a little bit different than some of the texts that we've uh, tackled so far. And I think we're going to try and approach it in a little bit different way, but uh, I did pick up a lot of useful information and I was able, it was able to do what uh, Freire also did for me, which was uh, help me articulate some ideas that uh, I've had before, but didn't really have the framing that this text provides in order to help kind of share them with people who don't already have them. Yeah, agreed. I think also like this book is fairly short. This book is like um, 200 pages ish. And that's, that's not, that's counting the introductions, which we're not going to go into great depth about. Uh, but Jean-Paul Sartre is one of the people who did the introductions or one of the introductions. And for some people uh, you may know, he's like the, the head honcho of the existentialist movement. So kind of an important figure. Um, Memi was actually in contact with a lot of very interesting people on the left um, and people who were very pivotal in terms of a lot of revolutionary movements around the world. Yet he himself has a rather mixed political history, um, which I, as I mentioned in the intro, um, but he's nonetheless someone whose work, and especially this particular work, is one that's been translated in multiple languages and 
became very famous around the world. This particular work is very important for the way we think about and at least discuss and categorize um, the issue of colonization, people who are colonized, and also just the relationship between the colonizer and the colonized, as the title <laughs> helps us mm-hmm. uh, kind of guess. But I think it's the way that he talks about both groups in this text is important because it helps us understand that it's not two groups operating separately from one another, but that one group depends on the other um, in order to define itself and maintain power. And of course, the group I'm talking about, of course, is, is the colonizer um, requiring and depending on colonized peoples in order to maintain their position, um, whether they're, you know, mediocre or not, or poor or not, or fill in the blank. Um, but the position of being a colonizer allows for several sets of, of privilege and um, access and power in ways that the colonized, according to um, Memi, does not possess. So we're going to talk about that. And the other thing, um, just a fun note, like, I don't know, I thought it was kind of cheesy, but it's interesting nonetheless. So this <laughs> book, when it was originally written in French, it was written in the 1950s. And the name of the book, like, just don't, as much as Memi is a very intelligent man, he's actually still alive. Um, and this book is like phenomenal. Don't ever get into the practice of naming your books like this. So if you, if you, if you write a book, give it a better title than his original French title. So the original title of the original title of the book, the colonizer and the colonized um, was actually called portrait du colonisé précédé du portrait du colonisateur, which means literally, and I'm translating very literally here, portrait of the colonized preceded by a portrait of the colonizer, which like, come on, dude. Like, <laughs> it reminds me of the titles like, you know, we would give texts and we were like in third or fourth grade or whatever, where you're not as creative and you just kind of put something down. Um, but don't let his original title fool you. The book is great. Um, and we're going to talk about it today. Quickly, yeah. as, as Wendy kind of alluded and mentioned before, is that while this uh, text is really great and informative, that you probably want to hold off getting the, you know, eight by 10 and putting it above your mantle. Of, of- <laughs> yes, yes. We'll, we'll get to why that is uh, a little bit later too, actually. Um, but there's there's some problems with the book, but that's that's the case with everything we read. Um, there's and a it's problem, important to be able to look at this stuff with a critical eye as well and not just be uh, accepting of everything because it uh, does offer some things that agree with things that we already believe. Right. Correct. Um, and so also just as a quick overview for this section, so we're going to kind of do, we're going to do it in order, but this the book is broken into three parts. The first part is a portrait of the, as as the original title alludes, (laughs) the first part is the portrait of the colonizer. The second part is the portrait of the colonized. So today we're just going to talk mainly about the first part, which is the colonizer. Um, But again, because they're symbiotic, there's a lot of back and forth between um, the two groups in the book, even though the book is sectioned into two parts as if they're like two separate units, but they're actually not. And he wouldn't say that they were. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we're going to start with portrait of the colonizer today. Um, it's, this section is broken into three subsections. So the first one is, does the colonial exist? And in this section, he kind of gives a basic breakdown of what 
um, someone who travels to another country that's been colonized, what they choose to do and what kind of person they are. Um, and then he goes into some sections that I think are really important for us to think about in the present. Um, one of the next section is called the colonizer who refuses, which is about someone who's a colonizer, but who doesn't, the, the idea of being a colonizer and having this kind of power doesn't sit quite well with them, but we'll talk about why in a few moments. Um, and then also the other section, the last and final section of the part on the colonizer, which is called the colonizer who accepts, which is also kind of an interesting um, portrait, if you will, of someone who is in a colonizer position, but it's not quite stable. Um, and we're gonna get into that as well. So yeah. So without further ado, let's open up our portrait of the colonizer. Um, just to give an overview of this section, like I kind of did a second ago, but just to reiterate, this section, he actually kind of talks about, he gives like a basic overview of what someone who is a colonizer, or as he says in this case, a colonial. And we'll talk about kind of like, is there a difference between these different categories? It's a little bit unclear. Um, but in this section, he breaks down a lot of the myths that are established about the mm -hmm. colonizer among colonized peoples. So this idea, he opens with an idea of like, you know, generally when we think about the colonizer, we think of like, or maybe, you know, not now, but back in the day, the mm -hmm. idea was that they were noble. They were doing this for the right reasons. They were going to save people. You know, they were there for an adventure. They had this great spirit. And in actuality, what Memi goes on to show in this section is that this idea of the colonizer is like all um, all built on fiction. Um, and it's an imagined idea that the colonizer themselves have constructed and that they work very hard to maintain by virtue of basically constantly putting themselves in a position where they're always on top. Um, so yeah, I don't know. What did you think about this section, Richard? What are your thoughts? I'll start uh, with I you. I thought uh, initially you mentioned the kind of challenging the hegemonic myths from colonization among the colonized and the, the portrait of the colonizer. I couldn't help but imagine Disney's John Smith. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and like that kind of articulation of the story of Pocahontas and how those types of stories take hold as truth. Uh, among colonized people as well uh, as the colonizers. So uh, it heroizes or turns the colonizers into heroes. And then the, the colonized rec recognize the colonizers as heroes uh, in their own portrayals or in portrayals that they're inundated with in society. And so that, that stuck out to me immediately. And then uh, some of the other things that kind of stuck out was uh, how he mentions or kind of addresses the idea that even if people did come with the idea that they're seeking adventure and picturesque scenes and all those kinds of things, that the, the reality and the nature of the colonial relationship becomes apparent very fast to even people that get there regardless of circumstance. And then uh, one of the other things was uh, that while they'll constantly complain about the, the hardships of the frontier and how and and brag about how they've overcome them they have no desire to return home to the lower quality of life that they left in in reality versus the the hegemonic mist of what they draw 
of the images of both the frontier and their home country once they've come there, which he goes on to discuss further. And like one of the reasons or the main reason he argues that they don't want to return back home is precisely because like the main reason they're actually there is about economics. Um, You know, like Mm -hmm. there's often this promise of like a secure job or you can have a higher status job or a higher status period, um, better access to wages, better, you know, better job options. Um, And ultimately he talks a bit about this idea, not just of the colonizer themselves, but the idea of the colony that's presented to the colonizer where it's this place where you can find yourself, where you can be your best person. Um, And I think the, the, the rub here, like the give the big, the big giveaway in terms of the problem of that is that, you know, he goes on to say that basically they're in these positions of power and those positions of power are maintained precisely because they allow for mediocre people to succeed because there's no competition. Like literally they don't allow, for example, the colonized to compete for these positions. They don't even allow them entry to these positions. They may, they may make limits based on language or based on educational background or even race. And so in many ways, the colonizer creates his own reality by virtue of like continuing to oppress. And that, that oppression is active, right? So it's not just something that, they set and they leave and walk away, but it's something that they actively engage and actively engage in maintaining more specifically um, so that the colonizer ultimately is always on top. Yeah. And that they do it with a, like a a rationalization that the colonized is uh, essentially an inferior being that is undermined by the nature of the colonial relationship in which they're extracting all of this labor and resources from the uh, colonized in order to get this uh, increased wealth and the, I guess, arbitrary uh, superiority that they, they see in themselves and in each other. Right. Yeah. It's like, and it's the, the, the word that you use just there arbitrary is super important because this is precisely the problem, right? Like it's, it's Mm -hmm. power and control and like status that's granted by virtue of, um, you know, just like where you're from, right? It's not anything that's actually based on skill or understanding of the world or intelligence, but literally by virtue of, oh, you're French, I'm French too. So we're good to go. Um, And he also, one of the other things that he really, he he adds to this um, is the fact that not only is this power arbitrary, but it's maintained by virtue of literally constantly taking it from the colon, the colonized, mm-hmm. right? So it's not something that's just like by virtue of the hard work of the colonizer, perhaps, or the tenacity or something like that, but just literally by quite directly taking it away, taking away resources and taking away opportunities and then thus limiting opportunities um, for the colonized. So it's not something that is a passive process. It's an active process the whole way through. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting is that this idea, again, feeds into this discussion about colonizer and colonized relationships being symbiotic, right? So it's, it's one, the colonizer cannot exist and cannot function and cannot have the power that he has or she has, because he kind of, he mentions women as well, um, without the colonized Um, without taking away from the colonized. Mm -hmm. Um, He says on page 52, for example, 51 and 52, um, that he's talking about the colonizer and he says, 
he must constantly live in relation to them, talking about the colonized. For it is this very alliance which enables him to lead the life, the life which he decided to look for in the colonies. It is this relationship which is lucrative, which creates privilege. He finds himself on one side of the scale, the other side of which bears the colonized man. If his, if his living standards are high, it is because those of the colonized are low. If he can benefit from plentiful and undemanding labor and servants, it is because the colonized can be exploited at will and are not protected by the laws of the colony. If he can easily obtain administrative positions, it is because they are reserved for him and the colonized are excluded from them. The more freely he breathes, the more the colonized are choked. Which is like, wow. You know, like you, mm -hmm. you really, you, you feel this idea of the scale that he mentions, like you see it, you know, you can imagine it very clearly. Um, when we start to talk about like what the colonizers were actually doing to colonize people. And I shouldn't use past tense here. I mean, there are existent mm. colonies right now. We live in one, you know, um, the U S is still a colonizer settler state. So um, yeah, I shouldn't even use past tense. I, I hate myself for even saying past tense, but, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it's, yeah, it's the present, right? So this idea of the scale is ongoing um, and it's something that, I think we have to also come to terms with and be honest about, right? Um, maybe not in quite the same way because both you and I are mm. um, African-American black people. So like it wasn't exactly the choice of our ancestors to be here. Um, mm. But at the same time, there are ways that black people in the U.S. and throughout the Americas can also aid the process of continuing um, colonial oppression. And we shouldn't do that. And so I think it's, yeah, it's important to always recognize that like these are ongoing projects. It's, they're not fully settled. Um, and and it it literally, the process of colonization relies on deprivation of the other and deprivation that in the other, in this case, is the colonized. And just on that, particularly for uh, Black uh, people, I think it's important that we be cautious and aware of the what Mimi describes. And I think a lot of people notice is the temptation to in the existence for uh, there to be a, attempts to buy, you know, loyalty or to buy, you know, uh, basically acceptance and, you know, complacency. And mm -hmm. so that like that there's, it's a lucrative profession to be uh, a colonized person who advocates in, on behalf of colonialization. And so that that's to be something we can be aware of and that uh, black people being as marginalized as we are, uh, are that much more valued in that kind of sphere. And so right. on the quote that you pulled, uh, I think that the last sentence, uh, or I believe it was attached, was also very important, uh, it, which was, while he cannot help discovering this, there is no danger that the official speeches might change his mind. I guess it was actually separate, talking about, you know, people pontificating on how to address those if they see them as problems that there's no danger the official speeches may change his mind for those speeches are drafted by him or his cousin or his friend, which also goes back to how they get to the colony in that a lot of the colonial relationships between the, the home nation and the, and the colony are, you know, Hey cousin, it's going great here. You should come out and be the mayor of X town. Mm -hmm. And then in, in the kind of more modern manifestation uh, that those who have uh, listened before probably I've used this, but uh, I think it's, it's very valid and relevant in this case is uh, professional basketball uh, pre-segregation versus post-segregation where there is a, a host of factors at play, but essentially because of 
the kind of you know if your living standards are high it's because the colonists are low if you benefit from plentiful like because of that line of reasoning uh because what was seen as the average white man was seen as the 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 most superior the they basketball teams were constructed around that principle and mm-hmm. so the the best players and the best uh, uh people that with the most capabilities physically and or based off skill were excluded from participation and produced a false sense of superiority among the champions of that era and so that those people feel as though that they were rightful champions but deep down many of them recognize or know and this is something that it expands on and the difference between the colonizer that accepts and the one that refuses that their uh, position is one that's usurped and and not justified and so i think we still continue to see that today in other fields that may have been legally desegregated but practically are still very segregated or oh uh, absolutely not just by race but by gender or other criteria I mean, he also, in the same section, he talks a lot about laws and how the laws are, again, created by these cousins, brothers, friends, sisters, you know what I mean? Like the same groups of people and those laws are enforced by the mm-hmm. same groups of people. So not only is there a nep- the nepotism factor, but there's this idea, as he argues, of a, what he calls a double illegitimacy. So basically, not only is the land not yours, the space is not yours, the power is not justly uh you know, it's not it's not something you inherited by virtue of your intelligence or your skill, but by virtue of your existence as a colonizer and part of the colon- colonial project. But also the fact of the matter is that you're you're then legitimizing your position by virtue of laws that you create yourself. Right. So it's just like the cycle of um, and the system itself is unfair. But not only is it unfair, but it's like replicating itself and sustaining itself by virtue of its lack of fairness and its total lack of legitimacy. Um, And so again, when you mentioned, you mentioned basketball, but you know, like there's, even when we think about that, like basic laws that we have in the United States, who enforces Mm -hmm. those laws and why, why certain people are not um, subject to the law in the same way. And, and I think that, I mean, again, there's so many real life examples from this book even mm-hmm. though I, don't, I i know there's been some discussion about whether or not we can talk about the united states or at least marginalized people within the united states beyond obviously indigenous people in this country being considered colonized or colonial subjects um but i think that still if we're talking about basic lived experiences there are lots of similarities even if there's not necessarily the same um, labor relationship. So like back in the seventies and you and I talked about this a little bit off, off air. Um, but back in the sixties and seventies post civil rights movement, there were a lot of discussions by black revolutionaries and the like who were arguing that the U S is basically in a position or the, the U S puts black Americans in a position and their communities in a position of being like colonies, right? A colony within a colonial state. Um, and, some people in recent years have argued that that's not necessarily an apt category for a variety of reasons. But one of those reasons is that at this point, you know, Black Americans and particularly poor Black Americans are sort of seen as like the surplus population insofar as we were brought here as slaves and worked and then thus our labor made us valuable to the, col- the colony. Um, but then after that, we had the industrial revolution and like industrialization in this country. And so in that sense, we were again, uh, a viable population, right? Because we were working in factories and things like that. We were helping maintain 
order in terms of the economy in this country. But then after deindustrialization, Black people, you know, in this country sort of became once again targets, but not so much targets for their labor, uh, but targets just as target practice, right? So literally disposable people um, in the, the prison industrial complex. Yes, that's true. I mean, I guess that's the only that's the only space where you could say perhaps there is a new labor relationship, right? But outside mm-hmm. of that, um, the average person who perhaps is not, not imprisoned, there's not quite the same relationship with the state in which we're valuable for our labor so much as we are valuable for them to like test weapons on, right? Mm-hmm. Or to test housing, you know, like housing practices or medicine or whatever, fill in the blank. But it's not something that is done in the interest necessarily of direct, um, you know, like one-to-one state and laborer situation. It's kind of an alternative space that we fit into at this point. Yeah, um, how dangerous so that's is why it to put these power lines next to this neighborhood, those like that kind of experimentation as well. Right, exactly. Um, and so I think that's, that's why, you know, some people have abandoned this idea, but I think it's still one that's important for us to keep in mind, like while we're reading books like this, because it kind of, as you read a book like this, you start to see a lot of parallels and you say, well, there's enough there's enough for me to argue that at least based on Memi's definition of colonizer and colonized that white Americans in this particular case pretty fit pretty well into the colonizer position whereas mm. black Americans and of course like it goes without saying indigenous people in this country are literally textbook you know colonized peoples um, but black Americans who are descendants of slaves arguably are as well yeah, and, and um, native peoples having casinos does not alter that point. So, like, no. I know that, that that often is like that's where you know people say, "Well, you know, they're all making a lot of money." It's like, no, that's the first off. There's a few, very few tribes that actually make money off of the gambling, and then uh, it's uh, it, that's not the type of power dynamic that it, like we're trying not to flatten these dynamics as much as we can, but we also have to recognize mm-hmm. that we're operating from a particular perspective that gives us insight to a particular uh, viewpoint rather than all the viewpoints together that I'm sure different viewers are coming at this text from. The other part that goes into what you were saying a bit about um, even the casino situation, you know, like you have to question the uh, the permanence of that benefit, right? So who possesses the power to, take those away or to police them or to regulate them. And it's mm-hmm. the state. It's not, it's not indigenous people themselves who have the power and even the power to just redistribute those profits necessarily. Um, and one of the things that he talks about getting back, talks about, excuse me, getting back to the text is like this idea that not only does the colonizer have the law just by virtue of writing the law on his side, but he also then has the military, he has the police, he has an air force, he has all of these modes of power in terms of like literal, physical, material power to help back up his position. So even if all of this is illegitimate, he has the best weaponry, he has the biggest Mm -hmm. army, he has the biggest like, the biggest physical power methods or modes of physical power to maintain this positionality of, of status. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's, there's no way that there can be a a chink in that armor because he literally has the power to maintain it all. Whereas if there were, if it were fair and like based on equality in some way, or let's say they, they actually opened up a space for the colonized to possess power, there wouldn't be a need to then 
maintain that power by virtue of violence, right? Like that would just mm-hmm. be, and especially not the violence of an army. That wouldn't be necessary. You would just say, well, everyone has a fair competition and whoever wins gets it. But that's not the case. And obviously that that operation also inhibits and prohibits in large part people who are colonized from being in positions of power because there's that element of fear and violence um, that then is always in the background, you know? If they ever lose the argument on the merits, they can always fall back on might makes right. And and the the colonized person has no uh, outlet uh, or very little opportunity to to resist that. And so that that realization, like you said, causes a, a fear of retribution, a fear of, you know, marginal, further marginalization and uh, can further uh, or can result in silence, which results in further marginalization rather than uh, punishment for speaking up. And so it's kind of a, a war game situation where uh, the only way to win is to not play, and, except the, the colonized doesn't have that option either. No, because it's like their entire space, their entire existence is dictated by, at least according to Memi, right? It's di- mm-hmm. Their entire existence is dictated by the colonizer. So there is no external space through which they can operate um, and have some sort of autonomy. I mean, that's a, that's one of the criticisms that many have in the book, myself included, is like, where's the autonomy, right? Like, mm-hmm. is there is there any sort of agency for the colonized in a book like this? And, you know, like, I think I agree with him in large part. Like if you're, if you're thinking about this in terms of systems, then there isn't right. Because you say like, basically the system itself is totalizing insofar as every single thing you think and do and try to do is bound by the understanding of the world that the colonizer has set. Obviously I'm thinking about like advanced colonization, right? So Mm -hmm. not at the beginning, but over time when it's been like a hundred years where you've been an occupied place, there's going to be, um, a type of, as you mentioned earlier, hegemonic sense of what the reality is. And that reality is dictated by um, external groups. And it's also, even in the situations where you have rebel revolution or pushback by the colonized, it's still then understood on the terms of the colonizer. So like, it's it's never quite as intended by the colonized in the end, because there's always going to be some sort of intervention by the colonizer to then shape it, reframe it, and then discuss it, regurgitate it on the basis of their terms. Like if we think about the way history is discussed, right? Like, you know, they say history is always in the eyes of the victor or something. There's some sort of Mm -hmm. phrase like that. And so in some ways, you know, even if there are interventions by the colonized to fight back, what we remember is we'll position them as terrorists or position them as, you know, the ones who are violating, um, I don't know, the sovereignty of the colonizer or in some way that we should sympathize or even empathize with the colonizer in these positions. I was just going to say, you might suggest that a slave revolt is actually led by a like a mass serial killer. Like, right. Or that a slave revolt is in itself illegitimate, right? Because mm-hmm. for whatever reason, another example is that like some slave revolts are legitimate, but others are not. Or some forms of anti-colonial struggle is legitimate and some is not. And this is what we hear even to the present, right? Like we see often this kind of respectability politics around protests and around revolution, to be honest. And so I think that he really hints at that in terms of like the way he talks about, you know, who, who, how, how things are remembered and how things are discussed and by whom and why. Um, I just wanted to, one other thing I just wanted to comment on, and then I'm going to pass it over to you is 
that I really appreciate his idea that he mentions when he's, he's still in the section where he's describing the colonizer. On page 56, he says, quote, the colonizer enjoys the preference and respect of the colonized themselves, who grant him more than those who are the best of their own people, who, for example, have more faith in his word than in that of their own population. So, I mean, I felt this so hard. Like, how many times have we, you and I both, have like <laughs> expressed grievances around this where we say, you know, like, I feel like sometimes when I'm talking that no one can hear me, I may say ABC and no one's paying attention, but then someone who maybe is like white and male will say ABC and everyone is like in awe, right? Mm -hmm. It's that, and this includes like of people of color, of marginalized groups. And we have this, we've been trained to hear and respect the word. And there's like, there've actually been studies about this too, to hear and respect and understand and pay more attention to certain voices, like literal voices coming from certain people on the basis of their, their backgrounds. If you can imagine the way that Memi is talking about the colonizer and the colonized, he's saying that the colonized, or sorry, the colonizer, despite being mediocre, despite not being trained for his or her positions, despite having this illegitimate power, is nonetheless respected and even empathized with and taken more seriously than the voices of the people that they are causing the suffering of and that they're oppressing, just by virtue of this, like, you know, arbitrary, random, God-given in some cases, as they say, right uh, to power. Yeah, and uh, what I, uh, I believe the ex one of the experiments that comes to mind is the Milgram experiment, which did the the electrocution, and essentially this hegemonic myth, uh, the hegemonic myths allow uh, basically the colonists to put on an, a lab coat made of their lies. Like, so it gives them this official authority that literally, like, psychologically translates into more, the, their voice being more respected and more heard based off of these, this, this lab coat of lies, essentially, is how I would describe it using mm -hmm. the, the analogy. One of the important aspects of the, the Milgram experiment was the reason that, or one of the reasons that it was being done was uh, to answer the question whether we could call the, the accomplices during the Holocaust, if we could legitimately call them accomplices or whether there was uh, you know the the refrain that they were simply following orders had some merit and so in that they the experiment they discovered that there was a factor that authority contributed towards people essentially disregarding their uh, their initial emotional uh, and social reactions to the situation that they were in but that it didn't necessarily preclude them from making a decision was essentially the, what people pulled out of that. And I think uh, using the, the analogy of colonialism and the colonial myths being essentially a lab coat for the colonists, uh, I think that helps us understand the influence that it has on the colonized. One of the quotes from the section that stuck out to me that kind of captured the, the inundation of colonial mythology and the, the kind of... A, effect that it has was on page 57 where he says the weekly day of rest is that of his native country it is his nation's flag which flies over the monuments his mother tongue which permits social communication even his dress his accent and his manners are eventually imitated by the colonized the colonizer partakes in an elevated world from which he automatically reaps the privilege so uh as uh when he was mentioning towards the uh, when colonialism 
and the colony has been more established, you end up with this point where the colonized and the colonizer exist in this world where the colonizer has this ingrained superiority and it's reflected everywhere from the statues, the monuments, the names of the buildings and streets, the, the flags on the, and even towards even the landscape gets altered with like a Mount Rushmore and things like this. It's everywhere you look, you're surrounded with celebrations of the colonizer and rejections of the colonized. And uh, we'll go into more about the images and myths of the colonized, but uh, that inundation is very important to then the decision-making process that either the colonizer or the colonized uh, engage in forthwith. And, and recognizing that there's a factor of an authority, but it's not uh, an excusatory or uh, exculpatory and, and entirely exculpatory uh, is important for both the colonizer and the colonized. And the holidays really get at this, right? Like when you, when you think about colonized peoples and the holidays that they celebrate, and I'm talking even about here, right? But if we're looking at like the Caribbean, let's say, or Latin America, and people are celebrating Christmas, and except that Christmas in Latin America, I mean, Christmas everywhere is in December, but December in Latin America is summer. So you'll see, for example, like <laughs> Santa Claus is everywhere and Christmas trees and stuff. And you're like, wait a second, that's not, that's not even something that would be in like snow globes and stuff, but there's no snow in Latin America in December, right? Because it's the middle of summer. It's also sudden in many cases, and it's also stark and stark, like so different from the reality that that other people have and so that's what's like that i think the jarring nature of it is something that he kind of gets at as well in a lot of what he's talking about in the sense that like just as quickly as the like just as as quickly as things happen to the colonized they happen as quickly among the colonizers so like he says mm -hmm. for example in 61 from the time he lands or is born he finds himself in a factual position which is common to all europeans living in a colony a position which turns him into a colonizer so like just by virtue of existing right mm -hmm. you're granted this power and privilege and like access to institutions and things like that and so it there's this sudden change the aspect of sudden change i think that that also adds to the destabilization of the positions for both actually, except, you know, in the one hand, the stability is rather guaranteed. It's only in unstable if the person were to leave. Right. So that's the, that's the promise and like value of moving to the colony in the first place, which he gets at at the beginning of this part, where he's basically mm -hmm. like, you know, you can become a different person if you leave your home country and you come to the colony, that's the promise of the colonized state, you know, um, and so sometimes that, that, explicit and sometimes implicit. Yeah, exactly. And so that power is is unstable only insofar as like if you move, right? If you decide to leave it. Mm -hmm. But if you're there, the power is guaranteed. If you're a colonized person, however, the instability is constant as well. But that instability is on the basis of your power always being taken away from you. So yeah, I don't know. I was there anything else that you wanted to add actually from this section that you found like. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's this section is pretty basic because it's just kind of laying out what the colonizer is um, or the colonial the colonial position. But I'm curious if there was something else that you wanted to comment on um, from this part. I believe in this section he does uh, tackle the the terminology, and perhaps this would be a good time to kind of at least talk about it since we've talked a bit about the relationship of the colonized and colonizer and why he he makes the two other terms that come up are colonial and colonialist. And so uh, I guess I could 
talk about a little bit about what I pulled out of it, and then you mm. can just kind of describe what you pulled out of it for me. Sure. Uh, what I grabbed or what I grabbed was uh, essentially uh, that the colonizer was basically as we've described and the colonized uh, uh, as we've described and we'll describe uh, further in, in the next episode uh, is uh, they, or they are that, but that the colonial is essentially a fictional character and that the colonial is the person that is characterized as uh, the person that just kind of stumbled into the situation and doesn't like the the exploitive uh, nature and uh, rejects the any benefits they may get, but in reality they still are accepting and enjoying them and are more aptly called a colonialist that either accepts or rejects depending on their uh, how they deal with the colonial relationship. And the colonialist is unique or is, is specific in that they are not just one who either kind of uh, refuses or accepts and rationalizes or some variation of that, but actually acts as an advocate of the colonial system and uh, suggests that, you know, this is the natural state or the best state of things and that it's some uh, a model to be exemplified and that essentially it's also kind of the ideal endpoint for a colonial who accepts is to eventually arrive at being a colonialist. Yeah. I mean, I think you're very much clearer. You have a much clearer idea of what they mean. When I was reading it, I kept wondering to myself, like, is there some sort of like a really big difference between these words in French perhaps. So like, is there, is there like a difference that's more, that's less subtle in English? Because like in English, we, we would use these words more or less interchangeably, right? Like colonial, mm -hmm. colonialist, colonizer, it's like the same thing, you know? Um, but it's, I, I kept wondering like, is there, is it just that he's creating these differences like for the sake of the book or if there's perhaps like some sort of linguistic difference that I'm just not aware of? Um, that may actually mean make these terms like really different from one another in a more technical way. Um, but like I thought, so this is, <laughs> these are, these are the notes that I took when I was reading it, but I could mm -hmm. also be wrong. Like I, but this is what I thought about it. And I more or less agree with you. I just, I had in my notes, I had a lot of stuff about like which position was more permanent than the others for some reason. Like I kept thinking about if one could transition into the other more easily or not. So I said that the colonial, so colonial, C-O-L-O-N-I-A-L, is the mm -hmm. quote-unquote benevolent, so it's like fake, you know? Mm -hmm. I think he even says, like, at some point, the colonial doesn't exist. Like, he, I think he uses that phrase at one mm -hmm. point in the book. Um, but I say that the colonial is the quote-unquote benevolent European living in a colony but having no privileges, except that such a being does not exist because all Europeans in the colonies are privileged, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that even if this privilege is not necessarily solicited, like if, even if they don't necessarily want it, uh, I have here, quote, it's not up to him to refuse the conditions of colonization. So therefore, this figure is treated as such within the system. So even if he doesn't want it, it's going to happen anyway. So he then becomes a colonizer. And then mm -hmm. I have that the colonialist is... Um, a colonizer. So I have here that a colonizer can become a colonialist, but there's a space in which he's given the choice to leave the conditions of the colony or to fight towards changing them. And that mm -hmm. this is particularly true of new arrivals, which is like a section we'll get to later on. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then I say, this figure, however, is a danger to the system and the homeland, which depends on the system for its very existence. And so this position is less permanent because it's like a harder position to maintain because you're, you can't be in the position and like work it for the homeland, like the, the original country that you're from, but then you also are a danger to the colony itself. So I don't really know what I mean by that, but that's what I got when I was reading it. Um, and then the last one that I have is obviously the colonizer. Um, and then I say this one is typified by profit, privilege, and usurpation. And then I talk a bit about, like in these notes, I talk somewhat about the small colonizer, which he does talk about in the first section. Um, and the small colonizer is like the one that's sort of like, we they say in in French, like the Blackfeet, you know, in the sense that they're mm -hmm. like the working class of the colonizers. They're the lower class. Um, they're still Europeans, but they're seen as like, you know, kind of marginalized within Europe. And then when they come to the colony, they have less, they have fewer privileges, but then in order to maintain them, they have to go overboard, right? And so you mm -hmm. like define yourself and you constantly defend this position. You have to reassert this position as a colonizer. And usually like, I mean, in a lot of anti-colonial stuff, like writing, they talk a lot about these people being some of the worst of the colonizers because they have direct contact with uh, the colonized in a lot of ways, or they're like mm. very similar in status. But the only thing that makes them different is the fact that they're European. And so they do everything that they can to maintain their difference among, you know, and this is something that came up too. Um, uh, just to maintain and project their lab coat uh, right. authority, you know? Yes. Um, but this is something that came up when I talked to Anne-Marie Angelo last year about uh, Mizrahi Jews in, in Israel and like how they position themselves in relation to Palestinians. And like one of the things that she mentioned is that actually a lot of the Mizrahi um, Jewish groups, like political groups have, although this is changing over time, but it's, I should say it has changed over time depending on the time, the year we're talking about, but some have responded to their position as Arab Jews by being like super conservative and actually super anti-Palestinian. So it's this, you know, this, you have to constantly differentiate yourself from the other so that you're not like lowered in status, right? You don't risk your position. Um, or as you would say, you don't risk losing your lab coat, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's, those are the differences that I had. But again, I was thinking about them because he talks, he, he seems to have a lot of discussions within the book kind of about like permanence or what is, what is stable and what's unstable, what's, what's going with time and what's going against time. And I think that that's why I, I characterize them in that way, but that's how I saw the differences. But again, those differences I think are like really subtle. I don't think they're, they're quite as clear as like both you or I are making them because as I was reading it, I felt like he was using them a lot interchangeably, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think mostly what he wanted to refute is kind of the the common refrain we hear of in, in more modern terms of, you know, I live in a trailer park. How can I be privileged? Right. Yep. Like, yep. So that, that's what he's what I uh, was kind of getting from that section. And uh, the one other thing that he just kind of touched on, and I think he goes on further, is the the idea that you know, this benevolent colonial or uh, what goes on to be described as the uh, colonial who refuses uh, goes and eventually like he says, uh, quote, having first eaten couscous with uh, curiosity, he now tastes it from time to time out of politeness and finds that it's quote 
filling, uh, it's degrading and it's not nourishing. You know, it is torture by suffocation, he says humorously. <laughs> uh, and like basically goes on to kind of, you know, lightheartedly allegedly uh, insult the the colonized people for which he still sees himself as separate and distinct from. And that's kind of an ongoing theme that he expands on uh, in the further writing. And he also mentions, you know, like why he spoke to someone, he says, that is not immaterial to mention that was a communist that asked him, why not wear tarbush in Arab countries and dye your face black in Negro countries? Uh, an irritated teacher once asked. And so, like, you know, this idea that the colonizer, uh, the only way to not reject being identified as a, a colonizer and to identify with the colonizers then to to do things such as, you know, uh, dye your face black in Negro country and kind of demonstrating the frustration that he saw with, from someone he articulates as a communist uh, with a frustration uh, in the recognition of identifying colonized people as distinct from the colonizers and their so, interests as well. So some of the stuff that you're talking about now is coming from the sec the next section, oh. which is called the colonizer who refuses. And this part is, oh, I think... Oh like the strongest part of the whole book. Um, I, I don't know why, but I just, I felt so like whenever I read this part, I was like, yes, this exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like I'm like nodding my head the whole time. Um, because in this section, he talks primarily as Richard, you know, hinted at with the sections that he was talking about, he talks a lot about people who see themselves as different from the colonizer, even though they themselves are colonizing a space, right? So um, we have in the United States, you know, arguably this discussion around white liberals or um, like, the, you know, and I say that in the Martin Luther King sense, right? So his, or the Malcolm X sense even, um, where they were both critical of white people who are seemingly benevolent, who are seemingly interested in these causes or their causes more specifically, but yet, still have these issues of privilege and positionality that they have not properly worked through. And they then in short, you know, as Barbara Ransby would say, cannot get past their whiteness, right? They would be great allies if they could just get past their whiteness, except that whiteness is a system in large part. It's a system of power and whether or not you reject your whiteness is irrelevant because this is a system in which we live. Right. And so I think that there is in this chapter or this, the subsection of the, the chapter, he, basically is pointing to the fact that like, even if you want to reject um, the, the position of colonizer, you're still exhibiting behaviors and you're still existing within a system that puts you in a position of power. And it's a power that you cannot just take off, right? Like it's, it's not something that, that you can get rid of in an easy way because you're still operating within a larger system in which like you're given power. You know what I'm saying? It's like a cycle. There's no, and, and this is again, why I say it's like, it, it, it makes you question like, does he see anyone in this book having any sort of agency? Does anyone have power? Cause it seems like even the colonizer technically doesn't have that much power because he's being shaped by this system that he helps maintain, but that ultimately seems to like say everyone either fits into one category or the other and you can't escape it even if you try, you know? Um, so I don't know, this, this chapter for me was great and, or this section, I should say of this chapter was great because he, I don't know, I, I think it, it helps us really understand certain criticisms that we see now of well-intentioned people who can't get past their position of privilege 
in order to really, really actually do the work that they need to do to help certain groups or work. I shouldn't say help, but work alongside and listen to, to be honest, certain groups and then lead, you know, be better leaders in a way that they're not just doing everything on their own, but instead listening, reflecting and working alongside others towards their liberation. Right. So that it's not it's not just a personal project uh, to pat themselves on the back and say, look at me, I'm one of the good ones. Yes, absolutely. And one of the like one of the ways he articulates that is kind of mentions that the like actual real empathy and love for colonized people is recognized as a threat to the colon uh, to the colonial project and to the colonialists and to uh, colonizers in general. And it's treated as such by the home country and those in power who recognize it as such. And so uh when like one of the things that uh encourages uh allies to reject being a, a true ally is when they try to take off their their lab coat which is sewn into their skin essentially uh they realize that they get the negative consequences without the embracing of the colonized because they're still not a member of the colonized people and he kind of one of the things that he suggests which is one on the more extreme sides of the rhetoric and and uh, ideas put forth was says quote let him take one more step let him complete his revolt to the full the colony is not made up only of europeans refusing the colonizers damned by them let him adopt the colonized people and be adopted by them let him become a turncoat and then one of the suggestions uh, kind of precedes that is like with no way out except submission to the heart of the colonial com community or departure suggests that perhaps leaving is the only option for the colonial who truly wants to refuse and show love for the, the colonized people. But then also con it runs up against the contradiction placed by uh, the necessity of uh, allies that are, that still have power within the colonial system. Exactly. Like I remember once I was speaking um, to a colleague of mine who's indigenous and you know, we were all like everyone in the room was just kind of talking about like, I don't know, like loosely, right? This idea of liberation and what that means. And he was basically like, you know, there's no liberation for indigenous people until everyone in this room leaves this country. Like, you know, like, I mean, it was great because he just like laid it plain, like there it is, you know? And I think that there's, those are harsh words, but they're harsh words that people have trouble understanding and like reconciling in their brains because it does, they have to then not only refuse the colonial project, but it means they have to take themselves away from the power that they benefit from within it. And that means All that leaving. Privilege. Yeah, like you have to leave it. You can't just, you can't operate within the same system and act like everything's gonna be the same. Like even after, even like, and I know this from direct experience, looking at post-colonial states that have had wars and that have fought and like literally so many people left who were colonizers and yet, they still, when they go back, when they go back to those countries, they still have immense privilege. They're still treated with greater respect. They still have maids and butlers and all this shit. You know, like it's not, it has not ended. It doesn't end even after the wars because mm -hmm. those people always, it's it's embedded in the society at that point, you know? And so whether whether you're good, quote unquote, good or bad, you still possess power in that system that you, you can't shirk and that you benefit from in ways that I think People are uncomfortable accepting and coming to terms with because they know that that then means they're the bad guy. 
you know, whether they want to be or, or not. The other thing that he says that like in this section that I think is really important is that there's no way, for example, that you can be, that you can reconcile communism or socialism and then maintain a colonial existence. Like you mm -hmm. can't be a colonizer and act like this universal idea of socialism, which is good. Like he said, he doesn't, he doesn't denounce socialism or communism, but what he's arguing is that if you're really, a, if you're really about it, like, you know, mm -hmm. if you really mean what you say in terms of tearing down colonialism, then you can't stick around and you definitely can't always apply a universe. It's not just about like economic universal programs. He says, you know, like it's, it's not just about the economics, but there's also this social and psychological, um, you know, uh, institutions and systems that go along with this that won't be broken down with economics because even, you know, like this, again, this is like proven by history, but like even when you have um, leftists who let's say are European who are helping anti-colonial fighters in these countries, they still then move up high in the leadership or they get privileges that the other soldiers or fighters don't get or after the war, you know, they have slightly more positions of power or in many cases for example some of them are fighting alongside marginalized groups like the colonized precisely because they want to protect their necks like they don't want to get they don't want to get killed so they have to you know position themselves as allies but in many cases you know not i don't want to say many but in some cases their interests are are that of the self and self-preservation which is a normal human response but nonetheless not necessarily one that will prove beneficial to the to the larger anti-colonial project always. And it's important that if somebody wants to be an ally, they recognize the the vulnerability there and stay vigilant uh, against it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, I mean, but then at the same time, like, how do you, I mean, again, this is like the issue, right? With the book, once you've recognized it, how do you remain vigilant against it if you're still operating unless, like, unless you leave? Right. If you're operating in that same system, where's the escape where you all of a sudden become devoid of your former power as a colonizer? And also not just the power, but like the behaviors that come along with that. Because one of the things that I thought was interesting too, he mentions women, like he doesn't talk about gender so much. I mean, mainly the, the colonizer is fashioned as sort of a generic he, right? Um, throughout mm -hmm. the book. But at one point he says um, that, you know, women, <laughs> women are part of this project too. Like women don't necessarily possess any greater sense of humanity than the male colonizers. And so, and they, and they, at the end of the day, cause he, he talks about like the wives, let's say of these like leftists or, you know, like anti-colonial colonizers. <laughs> and mm -hmm. he basically says like, at the end of the day, they still side with the Europeans and they basically look at their husbands like they're crazy because they don't want to lose their positions of privilege and power. And so like, mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating that there's, he, again, he uses this chapter to kind of break down myths about who the good guys are and like, whether or not that's even an option for anyone involved, if they are on the, if they're, you know, the inheritors of, of the colony, if you will. And one of the interesting critiques that I think he levels that I haven't, uh, decided exactly how I feel about yet uh, is he says quote uh, talking about uh, essentially the leftist people within the leftist tradition trying to rationalize or justify uh, he uses terrorism uh, mm -hmm. but I think it can be applied to a variety of you know essentially violent outbursts but essentially what he says is 
quote, uh, he makes an effort to separate them from the colonized voluntaries or colonized people's voluntary actions to make an uh, epiphenomenon of his struggle. They are spontaneous outbursts of masses too long oppressed or better yet acts by unstable, untrustworthy elements, which the leader of the movement has directly or is basically unable to control. And so like that reminds me of, and this is contemporary with uh, MLK Jr. I don't know exactly the timing on this versus that, the quote that that reminds me of from Mm. uh, Martin Luther King Jr. But I I find that an interesting uh, point of critique and, essentially saying like what i wonder i guess i i'm not sure what how i feel about that i guess is where i was on it no, but this is the last piece that stuck out from the colonizer that rejects for me mm-hmm. i mean there's a part i i don't i think you might be on the same page with this but on page 74 mm-hmm. um where he says in the middle quote we know that leftist tradition condemns terrorism and political assassination when the colonized uses them, the leftist colonizer becomes unbearably, unbearably embarrassed. And so this connects somewhat to what you were talking about before in terms of this the concept of terrorism and where the like the good, quote unquote good guy colonizer fits, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when I read this part, personally, when I, when I saw this part, I just kept thinking to myself, like, you know, it reminds me so much again of this, this question of rioting, right? Mm-hmm. And how you'll see like, everyone's on board when we're marching peacefully and, or when like the colonized people are writing, writing articles or whatever, you know, like something. Uh, And I mean, even like when you look at BDS and people are not even on board with that, but you'll see at least some cooperation when it's something that doesn't involve violence, like physical Mm -hmm. violence or even property destruction. Because in many cases it's just property destruction that they're calling violence even though mm-hmm. no one might be physically harmed. And so, Except for the people that get tear gassed for breaking a window <laughs> or being right, around yeah, somebody like, who did. The other side is fine getting tear gassed, but not, God forbid, a building burned down, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But you didn't hear that from me. Um, <laughs> but I think that there's, there's that really, there's very real sense of unease um, by some people who are on the left. And that's regardless of, I mean, arguably anyone here in this country who is not, a descendant of slaves or um, indigenous, if you're like a, a white person who came, or European person, I should say, um, who came to this country, you're arguably fitting into the category of colonizer. And so like everybody's indicted in, under this, you know, like anyone who's on the left in the United States is part of this problem. Anyone who's on the left in Australia, anyone who's on the left in South Africa, you know what I'm saying? Like it's a big ass group. Um, that's, it's got to grapple with these questions. And I think it's something that we see a lot in real time. Um, the other thing that, that this terrorism question makes me think about too, is like the constant sense of the right way to be, uh, the right way to seek freedom, right. That's like, who is defining this and why, and like, who is, who's allowed to determine what that means. And also why, like, there's a kind of, I took a note that said like there's there's perhaps a reason why so many leftists like let's say in the United States are concerned about anti-colonial or revolutionary projects in other countries but they don't they're then like running around like chickens when they're with their heads cut off when it comes time for them to address issues going on in the United States mm-hmm. there's this constant like inability to to recognize their own position as colonizers or as like settle, continuing to be settlers 
in a state where they possess enormous amounts of power by virtue of being white or by virtue of being wealthy, for example. Um, And I don't know. And then this is where, again, I think that, and I think Memi would agree with this. This Mm -hmm. is where, unfortunately, the left analysis breaks down. Because if you can say that even poor white people, poor Europeans in, (laughs) excuse me, in colonial situations possess power and authority, then what does it mean then when we make everyone even on economic levels? Does that change anything mm-hmm. in terms of who's oppressed? And I don't know, I don't think so. It's something I grapple with because I think if we don't make room for other, other programs to make people equal, like beyond just economics, there's we're gonna a, be back at square one. Yeah, there's definitely sociological components, you know, that that need to be addressed, particularly now in light of, you know, modern psychological theory, you know, in the 60s, uh, they're still on in some of the nascent stages of understanding psychology, and we still are to, for that matter, but the very nascent stages of understanding how psychology affected human behavior. And so like, versus the, the, what dominated psychology pretty much up until that. And in still for long after that and in colloquial use was essentially uh self-determinism and that people made decisions based off of uh rational and logical thought processes and it was in the pursuing 40 to 50 years after a lot of this literature came out where we discovered that that we have we had found the science to to conflict with that previously well-established hegemonic myth and so uh, some of the text hint at that or suggest it, but don't, don't have the data to back it up at the time. One of the things that I think uh, mentions, and this is uh, something that my partner shared with me, I don't remember where they pulled it from, uh, whether it was an original thought or something, they got off Twitter or something, but uh, essentially uh, Memi articulates it as it was really a long time ago that he was certain, speaking of the colonist that refuses, of an a priori, uh, or he was convinced a priori (laughs) of the identity of human nature in every dimension that every person was a human and a full human and true. He still believes it, but rather like an abstract universal universality or an ideal to be found in the his in history or of the future, not in an individual. And the way that uh, my partner articulated it is that those on the right uh, value, find value in individuals so they can find an individual immigrant or minority or marginalized person that they identify with and empathize with mm-hmm. and liberals empathize with groups <laughs> in, on in the like or in the uh, in the more uh, abstract in that like they empathize with immigrants as a group but then are are capable of individualizing uh be or like individualizing people in order to rationalize or justify poor treatment and so like, uh, you know, well, the reason why this immigrant was treated this way was because of this action that they took rather than and then whereas people on the right are more comfortable just making blanket assumptions about immigrants. And then when they have someone in their personal lives that conflicts or contradicts that that expression, they just make an exception, an exception for that one individual. So the to just reiterate, the right makes exceptions for the individual uh, to accept them and the left makes ind- exceptions to the individual to reject them. Hmm. And I think that that's also reflected in that, that part on page 69 for those that wanted to catch it. I went back to it. There's also a lot of discussion about um, 
group, like the idea of group and like nationhood as well that comes up in this, in this section, the colonizer who refuses, like in the early eighties pages, like 81, 82, 83. Mm -hmm. Um, He talks a lot about, you know, like where, where does the colonizer or like the, the, the good quote unquote, good colonizer, like the one who's trying to be good, where does he fit or she fit in terms of the national question and that there's always this like unsettled position there, unsettled sense, because if like, I'm laughing because it's it's, yeah, no kidding. Like if you're a colonizer, then how do you make sense of a movement that's trying to create a nation that excludes colonialism, right? Like that gets rid of the the colonial idea and creates a nation state. And particularly usually as he, as Memi argues, a nation that's formed around the basis of ethnicity or race or like, you know, other, other things, the idea of creating a nation is one that's diverged because of colonialism. It's sustained by the idea of being not European, right? Like not the colonizer. And so you have to, the, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the mm-hmm. nation, as you define it, if you're fighting the colonizer is built more on what you're not. Right. And so if you are literally the embodiment, the physical embodiment of what they're <laughs> fighting, then where do you fit there? You know, like he says, uh, why should he struggle for a social order in which he understands that there is no place for him? You know, like there's literally not going to be a spot for you, dude. And so then. Hard so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And so then what ends up happening, at least Memi argues, is that there's a type of overcorrection. Right. So then the guy like the the quote unquote good colonizer will try to go along with everything that the anti-colonial group wants to do and everything that the colonized want to do, even if it means, you know, perhaps things that, that aren't necessarily in line with what his sense of leftism is. Right. And in many ways, like sometimes this, these national questions or national ideas, hyper national nationalism um, in a post-colonial state doesn't always fit with left ideas. And so he's saying, mm-hmm. like, you, you start to accept things that you don't even believe in just by virtue of trying to protect your neck. Like, it's the same right. the same idea we talked about earlier, but he goes into a little more detail. Um, and then he also says, like, <clears throat> that this is the part that I really was like, oh, this is this is rough. He says in 85, when after he, like, breaks down how shitty the quote unquote good colonizer is, he says, one now understands a dangerously deceptive trait of the leftist colonizer, his political ineffectiveness. So ultimately, like, what purpose does he serve then? He doesn't help the colonizer uh, because he's he's fighting against them, arguably. But then he doesn't help the colonized either because eventually they're going to get rid of him. Like, after he's after he's after his privilege has been useful for them, he serves no purpose. He just is a remnant of a system that oppressed them, right? And his he's at constant risk of you know, like being expelled or being killed or whatever. So then what is the purpose of his, his help here? I mean, again, this is what, I don't know what to do with this. I I agree on the one hand, but I think at the same time, like part of me says, well, yeah, but there were like, you know, communists and socialists that like really helped get the ball rolling in terms of the anti-colonial struggle and supported these groups and like helped give these countries resources and continue to give these countries resources. But is that also, it makes, it raises the question of like, is that also then forming a new colonial dependency, but just with a nicer face, you know, I don't know what to do with it. Thinking again, thinking using Memi's, the system that Memi creates in this book. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, Memi's determinism uh, appeals to the determinists in me. And so like, <laughs> I, I, I'm vulnerable to that. 
yeah. but I like I think I don't know if I've ever if I articulated on a recording or not but uh one of the ways that I've kind of uh, envisioned this and framed it in my mind is that the the role of uh the this benevolent uh colonizer or this one that wants to correct the action and join the colonized and <laughs> and identify with them is that ultimately what may have to happen is taking like doing something that conflicts with your leftist view and taking accountability in consistency with your leftist view mm. so that may to say that like you know it may require you to do something that's wrong and then recognize its wrongness and be held accountable for it which may mean the ultimate sacrifice of you know uh, separating yourself from uh, from the rest of uh, your movement and and not getting to enjoy it that may be the the ultimate uh, reality that that person faces which again is a tough sell but that may be the the truth that we're left with mm-hmm. I mean it, it definitely seems like that's the only option that's going to work in in these terms like in Mimi's stuff just like yeah. leave the movement or leave the country or leave like abandon the principle that you're holding on to and go with what's happening. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm conflicted. <laughs> well, and I think that's part of why a lot of, like a lot of the times it seems easy for some people to reject this stuff is because it's not, it doesn't fit the banking model of education in which colon, colonialization uh, easily fits in that it'll deposit the information it needs to perpetuate itself is it, it, the the theories and the ideas that we're engaging with require of us to bring to them our own experience and our own uh situations to apply them to the to the realities we face as opposed to the realities that bear lots of similarities and parallels uh to the time in which these texts were written but are also distinctly different mm-hmm. by the way um for anyone listening what richard is referring to is actually what we discussed during the Paulo Freire episodes. So if, if you're curious about what the banking model of education is, um, take a listen to one of those or set all of those. <laughs> there were three, there's three parter. It's a three parter. Um, but all of those episodes about uh, pedagogy of the oppressed, or you can actually just go read it. We have the free book on our Patreon page for anyone who's interested. You don't have to pay anything. You can literally just go there and download it. Um, but check that out because that way that'll sort of make uh, what he's saying here make more sense. And it's very um, much a book that if you pick up and read a, a single page, you'll probably get sucked into at least a chapter. So I highly recommend it. Oh yeah. And it's like super accessible. I would even argue like more accessible than this book, even though this book is shorter, I think. Um, and like this book is also very clear, but I feel like the way Freddie writes is like largely it's, it's in large part a way that really fits in with his philosophy, you know, like, make everything easy to understand and clear. And, you know, like, I don't know. I just, it was like, we, we kept saying over and over that reading it was like a lesson in how to address the issues that he talks about in the book. It's like a, 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 a manual in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of nice. Um, yeah, those are nice to have answers with the, with the problems. It, it can be a bit overwhelming just to be presented with the stark realities of all the problems at once without. Oh, uh, you mean like Memmi? Who's like, Memmi's my homeboy, but oh my God, it's like heavy. You know, when you're reading it, you're just like, man, where does the way out? 
So speaking like of the way how out, to tie a hangman's noose as you're finishing. Yeah. <laughs> oh. uh, hopefully you mean that for the colonizer. Uh, yeah, in the well, revolution, you know. right? <laughs> That's what I like to think. Not, not to hurt yourself. <laughs> nothing about self-harm here. But, uh, no, but, I, yeah. but there's. Yeah, um, I'm a bad person to myself sometimes. <laughs> I, I'm working on it. And this all of this stuff is really helping me grow. So I really appreciate it. And so like even it, all, all aspects of me, I think it's helping me grow. So. Uh, internalized yeah, uh, depressions as well um, <laughs> like helping to address them i should say you're so earnest richard like again <laughs> i'm i'm the angry one richard is like i'm like learning from this and like taking so much out of it and i'm like kill the colonizers like, this, is <laughs> this is how we're different um but again those differences work well together <laughs> right it's symbiotic um uh, so yeah were there any other thoughts that you had from the colonizer who refuses those, I think that is what stood out. Let me just see. Uh, one thing that we kind of touched on was just how the the colonizers are protected both by international law and an attentive mother country, and oh, so yeah. that, that that additionally plays a role in the power dynamics uh, mentioned before. Is essentially that they can always fall back on might makes right. So if uh, the governor really did do something wrong, and it really does need to like in like it's obvious and, and guilty like if necessary they can always just fall back and well you can keep this corrupt governor or we can burn your city down it's up to you mm. <laughs> like, and so like that that i think really sticks out and is a, still a reality and uh, is kind of how we see we mentioned earlier the conflict in venezuela or the the the, inv- the attempted coup or however you want to characterize it in in various other countries throughout the world where essentially the U.S. presents this ultimatum of either you adopt these ideas of what we think your country should be, or uh, we're going to enforce them through force. And so, and it's just now that we're kind of butting up against the reality that uh, we don't necessarily always have the ability to both maintain the the social order it takes to get international uh, assistance and collaboration with that kind of uh, strong arming and also being able to actually carry through with the threats if our bluff is called in cases like Iran and North Korea. And to be clear also, just like, I guess not to be clear, but to put it into context of what we're talking about here, the situation with the U.S. and Venezuela is like, it's another level. Like it's not even close to colonialism because no one's, no one from the U.S. is necessarily Mm -hmm. trying to settle there. I mean, you could argue that uh, expats, like people who left the country, kind of like what we saw in Cuba after the revolution of 59. Um, some people left during Chavez, uh, Chavez's ascendance to power in Venezuela and now are trying to go back. Um, and they have made that kind of a rallying cry in their support of Guaido and the U.S. in their attempt to take over the country. Um, so you could argue that in some ways it's similar to a colonial project, except that like they're from there, so whatever. But anyway, um, in the case of the U.S., it's just like straight up imperialism. Like there's yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. not even like an element where you're like maybe there's some good guys here. Some it's pretty obvious what's going on, um, and slightly different form of of international interference and control but nevertheless relevant to this larger discussion about power um and and how people are subjected to power when and and how that relationship is symbiotic as well because like arguably you would you could say like the u.s wouldn't be the u.s were it not for all of these instances of power 
over overreach in the, the rest of the world. You know, um, it would it literally wouldn't have come to be um, if it weren't for uh, colonialism and then later imperial. You know, like it's it's just a lot. But I think that there's there's a lot to be said about ways that we can apply this book to to imperial neo imperialism as well. Actually, and I think the the question of you know delineating between the 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 different colonizer colonial and colonialist uh kind of highlights something that i think may be uh i don't know if lacking is the word i want to use but something that we a challenge that we face in modern (laughs) times is uh modifying and uh inventing and creating uh lexicons that uh are allow us to articulate the nuances that we're describing uh, Mm -hmm. in ways that don't only just make sense to people that are extremely familiar with it, but have some sort of uh, prima facie kind of association to the types of relationships that we're trying to articulate so that they can be used to uh, articulate it or to, to describe these phenomena to those who haven't engaged with the materials uh, in the, with the thoroughness or with uh, the time that we have invested in it so far. And so, right. It's like what we were talking about earlier with the colonialism uh, analogy, though, right? Like mm-hmm. how academics kind of pick that to death when in many ways they're the colonialism model, at least as a metaphor for understanding the positions of poor people of color in this country and particularly black poor people. Right. Like calling them people for, for black revolutionaries to call themselves a colonized people in this country wasn't an accident. Right. And so sometimes, you know, people do like over academicize, even though that's not a word. See, I'm already doing it, but then <laughs> making up a word and I'm picking it apart. Um, but yeah, it's something that I think sometimes we have a tendency to do because we like exactness in America, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to have the exact right word and exact right phrases to describe things. And academics are particularly bad about this. And like, I read a book by an author who will not be named because he's a great person and he's an intelligent guy. but refutes all of these all of these uses of terminology like neocolonialism, colonialism, blah, 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 um, in in modern terms because like they're not exactly right descriptions of the issue at hand. But it's like that's the language we have, you know, and until a better term is invented, that's the closest thing we have to describe a situation. And so like it is important that we respect that, I guess, and like understand why people do those things as opposed to like analyzing it to death <laughs> yeah, so like it needs some theoretical underpinning for the meanings of the words so that they're not just being used because they sound good but then they also need to have a, a colloquial value so that when you share the words with somebody you don't spend the next 20 minutes explaining that you mean this not that mm-hmm. yeah for sure we need some sort of we need a system like a, a button you can press to um, <laughs> create create a word i don't know I mean, we should be like the Germans, you know, we just like tack another word onto the word and then you create the new word and it's like a better word. Right. Maybe later. <laughs> Maybe we're, we're working on it. We'll come Good up with a word. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of words, mm-hmm. let's transition to <laughs> chapter or not chapter, but the part about the colonizer who accepts, which is like full of words, this part. Um, and I liked this section. I felt like it also had some issues, but like, for the most part, pretty solid. Basically, to just give a quick overview, this section is about the person who's a colonizer, but like who by became one by choice, but in a way that they weren't necessarily seen as like the natural colonizer. So they weren't 
necessarily like um, a European from the same country that colonized that place. They might be a European from another country or a sort of marginalized group within the colony, but nevertheless with more power than the colon, like the, the more oppressed, the more colonized, um, and what they do to maintain that position. So that's just the brief overview. But now let's get into the nitty gritty of the chapter itself or the section itself. Um, let's see here. Uh, one of the things that I picked out was like and we touched on it a little bit before was that the they're only interested he describes the this person as only interested in creating a position for themselves and obtaining their share when that sends them and another uh, or sends them another welcomes them and his job is already waiting for him basically saying that it's all already set up and all you have to do is accept it right. and so like uh, and the there's a natural predisposition to to do that for oneself and he goes on on page 91 to say why should they not then congratulate themselves for having come to the colony should they not be convinced of the excellence of the system which them or which makes them what they are henceforth they will defend it aggressively they will end up believing it to be right in other words the immigrant has been transformed into a colonialist like essentially saying that uh it becomes a self uh, manifesting, self justifying uh, belief in that it, I've, I've come here, I've succeeded. The system mm-hmm. must work because I did it through through hard work and through effort, and therefore the system must be just and right. And they can o- often become some of the most, uh, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Effective advocates or colonialists. I mean, I was just going to say rabid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> most rabid depend defenders and you know supporters of colonialism in this case. Yeah. Um, an unfortunate circumstance. It is because, and I also don't know what to do with it in certain cases. Like, part of me is sympathetic to the immigrant in the sense, and I don't. I mean, he's not talking about immigrants in the way that we think of in the United States, where it's like people leaving dire situations and like escaping U.S. foreign policy and violence to come Mm -hmm. here. Like, that's not what he means. He's talking specifically about immigrants who travel to active colonies in order to reap the benefits thereof, usually economic, right? So, um, and in this specific case, because he himself is Tunisian, um, he's talking about, for example, Italians, um, he's also talking about some Jewish people. He, he's also, so he's Jewish, Tunisian, and his father, I believe, is also part Italian. Um, so he has a lot going on ethnically and racially. And this is sort of the, this is the position that he's speaking from for this book, obviously. Um, but he, and this is something we talked about too, how it seems like he's kind of working out his own issues through the book. Like he's, He's mm-hmm. at on the psychiatrist's couch, you know, like kind of telling them everything and working through bit by bit about how he even fits into this. Um, because he has several bits throughout the book about um, Jewish people and Italian people kind of being like semi-colonizers or in this sort of liminal space between colonizer and colonized, but nevertheless very securely doing better than the colonized, right? Um, and I, I don't know, sometimes it's hard for me to determine if he understands himself as one of these people that he describes or if he's saying that this is something he's observed and and that maybe he doesn't see himself at all fitting necessarily into this these descriptions that he gives because one could argue that especially based on his later 
politics <laughs> that he himself is is a person he describes in this book, right? He he's some he fits somewhere in this like colonizer who accepts position, um, but also the colonizer who rejects. So he sort of he you can see him coming through the book, is what I'm saying. Um, but one thing that I think in this section that sort of stood out to me is the fact that whether you're a colonizer proper, like T it's basically like a trademarked colonizer or like a budget colonizer, you know, like he's kind of like the generic budget colonizer. And it makes you wonder, or he, he kind of puts you in a position where like, he says, there's really not that much of a difference. So he says, for example, on 90 quote, I do not believe, however, that the distinction between the, the two, like the colonizer or the colonialist is a, that the distinction is a fundamental one. The material condition of the privileged person or usurper is identical for the one who inherits it at birth and the one who enjoys it from the time he lands. So basically every at the end of the day, it sort of flattens these differences because they're still the ones who possess power. Like this is this in his book, basically power, the power you have as a colonizer flattens any distinction of class, of race, even of religion. And it becomes a question of, are you a person who was a native to that space or are you a person who came there later on and then became part of the colonizer, part of the colonizers? I mean, it's very much like, I don't know, again, you were talking about like determinism, like it's, it's very much pretty much set. Like there's no, there's no need to like, look at the the intricacies here. It's he's, he's just like, everybody's bad. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, every everybody's bad. Even if you're an immigrant, you're shit too. Like that's basically what he's saying in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean that's pretty much what it boils down to. Uh, <laughs> one, one of the things that uh kind of stuck out out of this section was uh essentially his focus on mediocrity and the the celebration of it and kind of mm -hmm. how he articulates it. Uh mentions that like when you look closer at the situation that uh, you'll find it, you at first, you know, if you look at a colony, you hear all these stories of great men doing great things, basically. But if you look uh, closer, you'll find only small or men of small statures once you look past all that and that they have practically no knowledge of history and that the politicians that are in tasked with shaping history are always taken by surprise and incapable of forecasting events and that the specialists responsible for the technical future of the country turn out to be technicians who are behind the time because they are spared from all competition. See mm -hmm. this where China accelerates or is beyond us in uh, solar technology, uh, Japan, uh, let us in consumer electronics technology uh there's several countries that have high-speed trains we changed the definition of high-speed train train from what the rest of the world uses so that we could claim to have some <laughs> these are the types of uh, things that result or result and he says uh, uh essentially on page 94 it, that it's the mediocre citizens who set the general tone of the colony that they're the true partners of the colonized for it is the mediocre who are in most need of compensation that the colonial life provides. It is between them and, and the uh, colonized that the most typical colonial relationships are created and that they'll hold on tightly to those because uh, they've essentially gambled their entire existence on the validity of them. And right. so, yeah, like you have to, you have to defend how you got there, you know, and why. Right. Basically. 
elsewise you are like you you've delegitimized yourself and the the position that you have and as he he asserts that essentially the the, the self he says quote on 97 the self-defeating process pushes the usurper to go one step further and to wish the disappearance of the usurped whose very existence causes him to take the role of usurper and whose heavier and heavier oppression uh, of the usurped makes him more and more of an oppressor themselves. And so it becomes easier. Like this is where kind of, I think articulated in the, Oh, go back to Africa mantra. Mm-hmm. It's like You're a problem for us now, rather than you explain how and why this problem is our own fault. We prefer if you just didn't exist anymore. How about that? And so, like that's that's how I've seen it articulated, or I I related it to our current situation. Well, it reminds me too of like there are lots of plays and stuff. I mean, there's a famous Shakespearean play that deals with this, but where it's like the you know the bastard son or the demon or something that has like in the case of the Tempest Caliban, right? He's created and taught by the the colonizer basically of the island but then he begins to curse in his language you know and so it's a reminder to him that you made me right like you created this problem you're the one you're i'm the reminder to you of who you are right and i think for the colonizers obviously they don't like that but especially the colonizer whose position is not yet fully determined right like he's always at risk of perhaps being sent back or you know, having something happen to him or her, like it's not quite the type of permanence that I think the, the the main group that's in power has. And so he always has to do whatever he can to maintain the little bit of, of at least in the beginning, the power that he, he has uh, or to assert it as legitimate, right? Like, and people keep reminding him that it's, it's just not like, it's not going to work out that way. But, you know, there's, um there's another part of this section that, um, I think is interesting to think about because not only does it point to like things that were going on or things that go on under colonialism, but also just things that we have to think about in the present. Like, especially I always, when I read this the first time, I kept thinking about gentrification, even though gentrification, like there's no direct labor, I feel like a labor relationship with the people that are having their land being taken away or their houses being bought or whatever at low prices. But there is a sort of the same social dynamic that he describes in this book. And I think that the mediocrity bit is a part of it um, because you kind of, you feel like there are some people who go to poor neighborhoods, not just because they need a place to live, but also as a way to sort of find themselves, right? To actually, to get inspiration, right? Because they can't find it in their normal space and their normal environment. So they have to be um, in a position among people who are, they see it as less than to then find inspiration for whatever like art project they're doing or whatever else, you know, like it's kind of this use of, of the quote unquote native population to find themselves. Uh, I mean, just uh, what it, like triggered a thought in my mind of is essentially when wealthy people are slumming it, you know, it's like, exactly. There's also this aspect of like, well, at least in this place, I'm better than everyone else versus Mm -hmm. in my normal community. I'm one of many, you know, being, it gives you the, you know, big fish in a small pond instead of just another fish in, in the ocean. 
Exactly. And it's a, it's, this is the other, the other thing from this chapter that I thought was great that also connects back to this, but he's on 106. He says, he talks about the connection between colonialism and fascism. And he says that every colonial nation carries the seeds of fascist temptation in its bosom. And like, and then he goes on to say, what is fascism if not a regime of oppression for the benefit of the few? And while this wasn't as widely known at the time that he was writing this, but like, for example, the Nazis actually used, um, they more or less, ex Germans experimented on Africans prior to starting the Holocaust. There were many things that they were doing um, in the African colonies that they had at the time um, that they then sort of just transferred to use against Jewish people, Roma, et cetera. Um, and so there's always this kind of, if you think about the power dynamics that are operating under colonialism, it makes total sense that he would make this comparison. And I think in large part, not just a comparison, but to say that colonialism is an extension, if not precursor to, or operating in some cases alongside um, fascism. And it's one of the arguments as well that like people would get kind of upset at times when people would talk about the Holocaust in a way as though it were the, the first time ever in human history that we've seen this type of monstrosity by Europeans, right? While ignoring, for example, the slave trade or ignoring um, the colonial situation that was unfolding at the same time and then for mm. shortly after, you know? So there's a lot of, um, there's some, there's been some writing on this kind of like, um, pushing back against this notion that was coming up at the time and mainly around the fifties, you know, where people were trying to understand how the Holocaust could happen. And people were like, yo, how you let the Holocaust happen, but there's like all this other stuff that was happening too, that you completely ignored. So why is it that you cannot see, you know, um, when, why can you not see certain oppressions versus others? Is it, why are certain groups dehumanized versus others? Um, and I think that this, this text kind of gets at deepening those attempts, right? Where, to, where we kind of, not to, and of course, not to take away from the significance of the violence during the Holocaust, right? That's not what he's trying to mm -hmm. do, but he's saying like, we have to see this as a continuum, Right, as opposed to these separate isolated incidents, because if we don't recognize them as a continuum, then we're basically doomed to repeat the same issues, you know. Um, and and again, that's that's why it's upsetting that he then is so negative about anti-colonial movements <laughs> that are mm. that are happening. Um, nevertheless, I respect the fact that he's at least drawing these conclusions and making us think a little bit more about things not being necessarily clear breaks from uh, the like, like fascism being a clear break and something completely new from the colonial project. Hmm. And we, we talked a little bit uh, before we started recording about uh, kind of the, the benefit of being able to know what happens after he writes this book and, and mm -hmm. how that could then looking through that lens on some of the text uh, some particularly some of the more questionable passages, but one of the things that comes to my mind and is and shining a new light on it as we've gone over this was on page 102. He talks about uh, how colonials extol the the values of their own country as you know so wonderful that that's why we're trying to bring this wonderfulness to you through colonialism to the colonized people. And then on four or 104, he's there's a good quote where he says it would nevertheless be naive to tell a, col a colonialist that they should go back to that wonderful land as soon as possible, <laughs> repairing the air of having left it. 
And it's like, because intrinsically and in, in, in either explicitly or implicitly, they know that they came here because the, the, the myths and the stories that they told about their home country didn't apply to them and they enjoy greater benefit and the type of privilege that they lamented back home here in this new country where the subjugated class isn't them, but is instead the colonized people that they're displacing. And that's, that's so, I mean, yeah, like this part is, again, I've just seen so many examples of this in my own life that it's whenever I think about this book and like some of the things he says, it's just, it like affects me very deeply because I'm like, yeah, I've seen that. Definitely seen that. Definitely seen that. You know, like it's real. It's a criticism that's valid. And I think it's one that's like, again, ongoing. Like it's not something that stops in the fifties when he's writing this, but it's something that like I can name several examples right now um, where I think it applies and, and they're not considered necessarily formal colonial trademark states right but we see the mm-hmm. same kinds of behaviors replicated there's um a later part too where he talks about like in the same section though 111 he says or he says on 111 um quote i've been horrified to see peaceful public servants and teachers who are otherwise courteous and well-spoken suddenly change into vociferous monsters for trifling me reasons the most absurd accusations are directed toward the colonized. And I'm like, how many of us can can say we've seen people like this who seem nice during the day? You know, like when I say during the day, I mean like nice in our faces, right? They're nice. They're courteous. They say, thank you, please. Hello. They open the door for us. But then when you ask them about, um, you know, like a, a police brutality situation or a murder by police or um, even certain countries, like if you start talking to them about the situation in, in Palestine, like there are moments where you see the break, right? You see the crack. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, you're nice in my face. But then when I ask you, how do you feel about the rights of, I don't know, like black people to get X, Y, Z benefits or resources? Well, then you start to see who the real person is behind it, right? You see the defense mm-hmm. mechanism kick in and you see that defense mechanism precisely because they don't necessarily feel, first of all, in some cases they don't, they don't, they just don't see a problem because they're ignorant and they're privileged by virtue of you know, they're ignorant by virtue of their privilege. They don't have to care. They don't have to learn. But then in some cases you see the crack because those people are becoming over defensive because they don't want to lose their position. Right. It's like a fear mm-hmm. that they're not going to be in power anymore. And so the interruption of that, that facade is like what makes them become ugly. You know, it makes them break down the niceties that we're used to to getting from them. And you mm-hmm. see the real person, you know, like it comes out then. Yeah, um, I was just thinking that the like, I think this is me speculating here, but then the depolit- depoliticization of common spaces works uh, to the benefit uh, of the colonial colonial project and that by. Uh, stripping the ability to uh, at least superficially have uh, political conversations in these common spaces, you uh, alleviate that concern for those people of exposing their the the deep seated laments and uh, and hatreds that were covered in some of the earlier material that we talked about uh, mm-hmm. by essentially avoiding them and assigning a certain uh, air of uh, like inevitability and righteousness towards the political positions that are hegemonic already. 
So right. then, you know, saying something like, oh, you know, uh, you know, thanking our troops for their service is a hegemonic idea. So it's presumed not to be a political idea. So we can push this political propaganda in an allegedly non-politicized space. And that's a very powerful tool that I think is kind of captured and articulated a bit in this, this part of the uh, reading. I mean, it reminds me of something I saw once. Um, I cannot remember who said it. It may have been Tressie McMillan Cotton, um, but someone had mentioned once that, you know, small talk is like the language of the oppressor, pr- oppressor mm. pretty much, you know, because it, it, like it, like you were saying, it sort of renders all these other issues as the unspeakables, right? Like you don't, we don't talk about that. That's not polite, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I know you had mentioned that you had been sort of engaging in more direct um, conversations with people, like you had mentioned what you were reading and like what you were learning from it or whatever, um, and and use that as a sort of vector to talk about more important issues, um, which I think is a great idea, and like other people should pursue it if they have if they're outspoken enough or or um, you know like if they have the the sort of, I don't know, extroverted personality to do that. And I think I typically do it on the internet and I did it for the first <laughs> time uh, with somebody in person recently. And if they are listening, uh, you know, give me a, a pat on the back and thank you also for listening. <laughs> and hopefully they're reading pedagogy of the oppressed or something right now. Cause I think that was the book you recommended if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, like this, this idea that, there are certain things that are just unspoken that we don't mention. And yet it's like a mask, you know, because I I hate small talk. I I prefer not to engage in it ever. I'm very frank with people pretty much like first Mm -hmm. time I meet them, they know my politics, but there are ways to do that that are more subtle that aren't like awful, but um, you don't have to be a Debbie Downer, but there are ways to, I think, engage more serious topics without like getting through layers and layers of of bullshit small talk first. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's, like I think other people are hungry to have real conversations too. I don't think I've, I don't think most people enjoy talking about the weather. Like sincerely, I don't think they care that much about the weather. Like if you care that much about the weather, and it's not like from a climate change concern, <laughs> um, then there's something wrong with you. Like you're not you're not normal. You know, like this is this is you trying to to fulfill the the courtesies that you're taught within the society, but that depoliticize us and that render us into these like drones of people, you know? I I think Um, you're really right that people do want to talk about it, but I think part of the issue is that they like, we've been trained and uh, taught that, or we, we lack the kind of conflict resolution skills in a lot of ways to be able to have political disagreements and not disassociate from people altogether. Then mm -hmm. additionally, there are, political positions that are rather mainstream that are somewhat uh, antithetical to one another in which it makes it very hard to maintain any sort of social relationship in light of not understanding and knowing somebody has a particular position. So, Mm. you know, as long as you avoid the topic, you can, you know, still be friends with the person that thinks that, you know, immigrants should be shot at the border. But as soon as that topic comes up, it, or anything that's tangential, close enough related for that sentiment to kind of raise to the surface, then it becomes very hard. And there's both pro- professional and personal relationships that develop over time. And the longer that that develops, or the more important that is to the person's own individual success or happiness, uh, the harder it is then to to want to challenge that kind of dynamic. And then also, as we've kind of discussed for those that are either that are in the 
that are colonizers, it, it's in their own interest not to discuss these things because discussing them and the validity of these concepts immediately challenges their position and the validity of everything that they have. Right. And also, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Also, I was just going to say, if you have friends who think that immigrants should be shot at the border, you're a terrible person and you should get new friends. Like right? <laughs> you should maybe rethink your friends because they sound like they're assholes. Um, yeah, and that's hard sometimes <laughs> for people if they've, you know, grown up with somebody or, you know, they share yeah. a, like, you know, or, and, you know, people deal with it within their families in various relationships. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's easier than others to separate people from your lives. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely separate Like I, I talk about this a lot, but during the 2016 election, I saw some people that I was friends with say things that were just like terrifying. Um, and mm-hmm. I had to just stop. I just cut them off um, precisely because not only because it affects me, but it, re- it tells me the type of person they are like that. It like, they don't, I don't know how to put that. They don't have a sense of empathy, which is scary. Um, and it's also a sign. I think that, you know, when the chips are down and if it came down to, you know, like who knows what kind of situation this world's going to be in in the next few years, they would put themselves over anyone else um, in ways that I think are terrifying. And I just couldn't, I, mm. I couldn't keep listening. I think for me, listening to them say these things and know that there's so many people in the world who like do need help or do need, you know, whatever, like it did not sit well with me. I couldn't, I just didn't want to keep seeing it. Um, and again, you know, like I, even though I said it's not personal, it is personal because it's like, what if one of us, what if like mm-hmm. I became poor all of a sudden, like really poor and then, would you say the same things about me? You know, like it makes you start to question how much they value you as a friend because you question what they would be saying about you if something happened to you and you needed support. Um, and most likely their answer would be, I don't give a fuck because I want to go on vacation and I don't want to spend the tax money. Like, you know, and like you that, made some that, poor decisions and, you know, find any yeah. way they can to rationalize and justify your circumstances being unique to you in that not their responsibility or something that they bear any responsibility to help correct. Right. And I have friends who cut people off all the time, like on the the basis of their foreign policy, I, you know, um, beliefs as well, like, which I understand because if you have family, for example, that lives in a place that's being hurt, harmed, attacked, invaded by the United States, for example, then I can understand how this stuff gets super personal. Like it's, it's, I was just going to say some of the hegemonic rhetoric can be very offensive too. like things that are mm-hmm. considered acceptable in one group. If if you have family that it's like you're talking about, like the Palestinian situation is a good example. It's like, oh, well, you know, the inevitability is like there's really nothing we can do. The best case scenario is, you know, that the Palestinians peacefully move on to some other place. He's like you're talking about removing people's families and like destroying right. their lives. It's like. We in in general and even in our talks, we talk about this from a kind of academic perspective, but we're talking about real people that Mm -hmm. suffered real consequences that lost lives, lost livelihoods, lost homes, families, children, like everything like in for generations in in these situations. And people risked everything to sometimes just articulate these things or let alone to actually live by them. So like it's uh, it's sometimes easy to get wrapped up in the ID, uh, the the ideas if you're not intimately and closely 
experiencing the type of harsh realities that the most marginalized or vulnerable people in society are both in the United States and then to a greater extent throughout the world. Right. No, I agree. I agree. And I think, you know, I hope that what we talk about here and what other people are talking about, like in, in similar forms of alternative media are at least getting people to be more empathetic um, Mm. and to understand why sometimes these topics are like very close to people's hearts. And like, just to understand that like, these are human experiences that maybe not all of us have had, but that they're Mm -hmm. human experiences that are valuable nonetheless, and that we need to be, um, you know, like literally in many cases, fighting for people's right to survive and to live as human beings, like point blank. Like this is, this is how dire it is in some situations. Um, So I don't know. I think, I hope that what we're doing and like reading people like this and presenting one perspective um, and at least having us rethink, because I think one of the things that Mimi is so great about, like despite some of the problems I have with the text and Mm -hmm. with the writer himself, one of the things I think he's great about is like really hitting you over the head with the subject matter to the point that you, you're like, you can't deny what he's saying. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it's very, it's very to the point it's direct. And like, once you, especially if you think about what he's saying and then you combine like actual history, like if you plug in examples Mm -hmm. from histories of colonialism, you're like, Oh shit. Like this is, this is real. Even though this is kind of theory based, it's the he's reflecting a reality that we see in so many cases past and present. um, And that there's no denying that, that these relationships did and do exist and you know are not healthy and not they they they're intentionally meant to harm you know there's it's there's no benevolent colonialism there's no benevolent imperialism like i'm tired of hearing this you know it's mm-hmm. it's not benevolent it never has been and never will be but i still hear people say these things you know and i'm like go read a book yeah, I mean, I've heard people on the right argue that basically Africa screwed up colonialization or colonization yeah. and that had they been more accepting and more uh, industrious, that Africa would be in much better situation. And and it's not the colonialists that, that screwed it up. And it's just like, mm-hmm. how about the like trillions of dollars of resources you stole? Does that have right. anything to do with it? Right. And not just and, the right. And, and, I mean, I heard... <laughs> that you stole. Not just the right. Not just the right. I mean, there are people who, who call themselves leftists who consider themselves progressive, who Mm -hmm. regurgitate this shit too, who write these articles too. You know, I think, I think it's a, it's like a nonpartisan problem. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have a long way to go. It's getting, again, I think it's getting better. I'm trying to be optimistic here. This book is kind (laughs) of heavy, so I'm trying to be optimistic. I think it is getting better. And I think it's precisely because of stuff like this that people are reading and, people are interacting with other people who are experiencing the other side of like, let's say U S violence because the U S is not the only one, but at the moment it's the most powerful. Right. But if we go back in time, everybody's got blood on their hands pretty much. Um, So if we, I think exposing that and talking about it more and like, again, getting past the small talk allows us to engage in ways that we're not used to. It pushes us beyond our normal boundaries. And then I think we begin to, you know, hopefully, chisel away at some of the bullshit but time will tell you know because we also have a tendency to revert back to things we want to be comfortable that's a problem Mm -hmm. like everyone wants to be comfortable but sometimes that comfort means ignoring reality and like pretending that no one is suffering under the the yoke of whatever this country is doing or you know 
people in power are doing. I feel like that's a good section. <laughs> <laughs> and that was section three of <laughs> the portrait of the colonizer. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. I, and, and please do read this book. Actually, it's not that long. Like I said, it's, it's around 200 pages. Um, and if you skip the introductions, although the introductions are great too, I would say check those out. Um, but you can you can work your way through this pretty quickly because he's he's he speaks again. I think this is a matter of like the translation might be it's a little clunky sometimes or clunky, but um, it's fairly clear. Like I don't know, Richard, what did you think just about like the style of the book? Because we didn't really talk about that, but we have a few minutes left, maybe to oh. just address the style. Well, I mean, I do, uh, as people are probably aware, I, I listen to the books as I read along uh, through Natural Readers, and uh, it wasn't, the particular text wasn't super friendly for that, so it was probably mm. a bit more clunky than usual, uh, but I did find that, like, while I found more kind of uh, novel and new-to-me articulations uh, for things that prompted me to want to pull a lot of quotes from the fairy text this particular one i felt was more like it felt more kind of like a, a lecture or it fit more into the the banking model of education and that like hmm. it was like there's a lot of this information that i'm going to share with you and it's going to be irrefutably like too accurate for you to, to disagree with and, right. <laughs> and you, it's just going to get rammed into you. <laughs> mm -hmm. So like, I kind of had that feeling from it uh, in juxtaposition to like, for instance, the fairy text uh, as far as stylistically. And then I guess one of the other things that stuck out was just, it felt uh, it was structured and kind of organized in a way that uh, built on itself in a kind of more uh, essayist, uh, manner than a like a uh, somebody who works more uh, verbally I guess I would say yeah no I agree it kind of is like if there were a, a Jezebel for colonized peoples <laughs> or like a gawker you know what I'm saying like you know how yeah. they're very didactic like everything is kind of like this is the issue this is how I feel about it this is how you should feel about it end of article you know like it, it kind yes. of has that quality to it um but also the reason i say it's like a jezebel or gawker article is because it, it just at the same time the language of it feels very um like i feel like this is like twitter ready you know like <laughs> it's the twitter ready of like the 1950s like if there were twitter in the 1950s his text would be like copy pasted onto it a lot, you know, because of the way I think like every line is very succinct in the sense that like, you, you know, like you get each paragraph kind of like, like operates on his own as like a, a really strong message. Um, mm -hmm. And so in that sense, it's very, you know, like, I think it, I think it's digestible in that way. Like if you're like you said, if you're telling someone something, like he's, he's a clear message, you get to the point right away, you know, he's, there's no beating around the bush. You know how he feels like, it, in yeah. that sense, that's why I say it's like very, it's like Twitter, but from the 1950s, that kind of, that kind of tone, you know? Yeah. The, the, we mentioned at the top uh, about like when he describes the difference between the colonial and essentially says, it's like, yeah, so this is the picture of a colonial and I know this is harsh sounding, but they don't exist. Moving right. on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fake AF. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not yeah. going to, I'm not going to, you know, uh, whatever. 
I don't know if that's an offensive word, so I'm just not going to use it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just like instead of beating around the bush, <laughs> he yeah. just dove right into it and said, "This is what this is what I'm saying." Now I'm going to back it up, but don't get don't get it twisted. This is what's coming. Right, right, and I kind of like that. I think it's it's a nice break sometimes because some people are like too soft. You know, mm-hmm. what I'm trying like to ease you into like- it. Exactly. And I'm like, no, you just need to slap a colonizer sometimes. Like, it's okay. Just do it. <laughs> and so I appreciate that about the book. And I think, you know, sometimes like, I think if I, I almost wish that I hadn't looked into him and I didn't know his position on things now, because mm-hmm. I think I would appreciate it a little bit more. Um, I would have appreciated his frankness, his tone in the book a little bit more because I knew that I would know that he actually meant it. That I don't think like knowing where he ended up, I don't know if he really meant a lot of what he said, but again, that goes back to my saying that he feels kind of, he comes across as a bit conflicted once you know his own story, when you read the book. Um, but still, nevertheless, incredibly appreciated, incredibly appreciated. Um, and obviously it was something that actually a lot of people read at the time and saw as kind of a treatise against colonialism in a very powerful way. And I think, you know, similar to books by Fanon, similar to stuff by um, M.S. Césaire, who wrote about col- colonialism as well, and in a very similar style, you know, where he's like very frank, like, y'all are fucking up. <laughs> this is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that sometimes. So, you know, give him credit uh, where credit is due. And yeah. But I, we are going to continue with this, actually. This is not the end of Mimi. There's more Mimi where this came from. Uh, we're going to finish with the part two, which is going to be about the colonized. So he's doing the underside of the the people, you know, that are being, that have the boots on their necks. Um, and that's what we're going to discuss in the next uh, podcast episode. Did you have any other closing remarks, things that you wanted to mention, stuff that we didn't mention yet uh, from the first part, Richard? Uh, let see here. There was. Or any other commentary that you wanted to add? Oh, uh, I guess just that from what I picked out and and you mentioned the kind of the knowing what his future entailed uh, was that I think he might have been sincere, but most sincere in like his answers for like he says for the colonized. But I, I think it's more for the colonizer in the sense that must choose to understand the colonial system and must admit that it's unstable and equilibrium is constantly threatened and essentially go back home and he did the closest thing that he thought he could do and, and go back home is like if i'm going to advocate for the colonials i'm going to go to a colonial place rather right. than be in the like i can't reconcile my life in the colony but i can do it in the home country i can do that <laughs> right and it's interesting too because like he, again he's in this like really po- weird position because he he has said that he didn't feel like he didn't feel safe Un, and like like he would be treated fairly under the new Tunisia, which had been, you know, after colonialism in Tunisia went uh, to more of a like I'm not I'm not sure if Tunisia has uh, a non-religious state or not, but I know like they they probably do have a like state as they say, but I also think that they're from his perspective he saw it as an unsafe place to stay as a Jewish person um, under the rule that was post-colonial. It was less about, but at the same time, like he, he, again, he goes into kind of this this discussion about like, where do Jews fit in a colony by the French that's colonized by 
Arab, like, or that the, the colonized are Arab and Muslim. You know what I'm saying? Like, he kind of has this weird position. And I think that he's going back to his going back to France is also still unsettled. Like, it doesn't seem like he's happy going back to France. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? He culturally it, fits more in Tunisia. Um, and it's also arguable whether or not he could be considered a colonizer. This is what I think makes the book so interesting because you're mm-hmm. getting the perspective of someone who's like really in the middle um, and I think can see a lot of sides. Um, and, I, and that's why I think he's sympathetic to so many, to, to the colonized more though than the colonizer. I, I think today when people share and in, in, in so many different identities exist in individuals that having text written from somebody who shared some of those struggles of uh, the the colonizer and the colonized both existing in them, uh, both like in the kind of philosophical theoretical sense, but then in the like literal cultural and uh, genealogical sense, it makes it a uh, like, it, it makes it that that struggle is I think unique among those that have uh, identities that are, uh, you know, segmented or uh, compiled or com- compromised or comprised of so many other different types of identities and many of mm-hmm. them also marginalized. And then, uh, but then some of them not so marginalized, it can be uh, very insightful to get, to recognize that even people that are, you know, spending a lot of time writing very uh, valuable and, uh, effective theory on this stuff still struggle with that in their day-to-day lives and even a hundred years of life doesn't necessarily mean they're going to reconcile it mm-hmm. agreed and on that note because we're not going to reconcile this book in two episodes but we're going to try <laughs> come back for the second part and uh yeah thanks so much for listening and we'll be in touch soon Peace. Mm-hmm. thank you And thank you for listening to this episode of the Left Pocket Project podcast. By the way, if you'd like to keep up with the project and the podcast, be sure to first of all, check us out on Twitter. And that's at LeftPOC, L-E-F-T-P-O-C. You can also check out the project via SoundCloud, Spreaker, or iTunes to get more podcast goodness. And more than that, you can check us out on Facebook. And most importantly, check us out on Patreon, where we have all of our content for free. Always, always, always. You could donate a dollar or more, which we would greatly appreciate because it helps keep the project running. By the way, did you know that I think I'm the only podcast host who actually not only pays her guests, but also makes a donation for the guests organization of choice? Oh, and we also pay our assistants and my co-host Richard gets a cut as well. So basically what I'm saying is we not only believe in left principles, but we live by them. So do what you can to help us out if you have a moment and if you have an extra bit of change in your pocket, feel free to send it to us. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much. Have a good one.